welcome back to the Cosmic Companion. This is the first episode from our new studio, and I'm sure hoping y'all are going to enjoy it. This week, we kick off Women's History Month by celebrating women in science. We have an amazing trio of guests, including science journalists Claire Fiesler and Gabby Salazar from National Geographic, as well as Kim Mishari, a chair of Space Prize. We're also going to take a look at three amazing women who changed the face of astronomy forever. So let's take off. Born in Delaware at the height of the American Civil War, Annie Jump Cannon would go on to develop vast catalogs of stars, some of which are still in use today. Young Annie's mother encouraged her interest in science, and the pair built a small observatory in their house from which they viewed the stars. The child began losing her hearing at a young age as she eagerly studied astronomy and physics. You know, only assume it had nothing to do with that. Cannon also held a lifelong love of photography, another field in which she excelled. Cannon participated in the first X-ray experiments conducted in the United States and worked tirelessly cataloging and classifying stars. Working as an early human computer, the women among whom Cannon worked were often paid around 50 cents an hour, roughly equivalent to $15 an hour today. From 1911 to 1915, Cannon cataloged an average of 5,000 stars a month. During her life, she recorded information on more than 350,000 stars. A member of the National Women's Party, she consistently advocated for, for the right of women to vote. Cannon worked at Harvard College Observatory until she passed away in 1941. Vera Rubin found the vast majority of matter which makes up our cosmos hiding within familiar galaxies. In 1938, as the storms of war began to brew in Europe and the Pacific, 10-year-old Vera Cooper was gazing at the stars from her Washington, D.C. home. Her father, Pesek Karczewski, helped the budding young scientist build her first telescope. A decade later, Vera became the first pro person ever to graduate from Vassar College with a degree in astronomy. She earned her master's degree at Cornell University, where she attended classes led by physics giants Richard Feynman and Hans Bethe. As the 1950s opened, Vera completed her doctoral work at Georgetown, where she met her future husband, Robert Rubin. Her master's thesis and doctoral dissertations were met with disregard by much of the astronomical community at the time. Therefore, Rubin decided to spend time studying something she thought wouldn't cause any controversy, the rates at which galaxies rotate. In a strange twist of fate, this study would prove to be one of the most controversial findings of all time, and one that would cement her place in astronomy forever. Rubin, along with fellow astronomer Kent Ford, 
found that objects uh, located in the outskirts of galaxies rotate at the same rotational rate as objects closer to the galactic center. This finding seemed to fly in the face of Newtonian physics. Now, Rubin realized that dark matter, invisible gravitational wells first detected between galaxies, was also found within the galaxies themselves. This finding revolutionized the human understanding of the cosmos. All of Vera's four children would later go on to earn doctorates in science or mathematics. Now, the year 1967 is known for the Summer of Love and the release of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. In Cuba, Fidel Castro ordered the free release of all technical knowledge in his country, which he held to be the property of the people of his nation. That same year, pulsars appearing as incredibly regular flashes of light were found in the depths of space. Like Cannon and Rubin, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, born in 1943, entered the world under the storm clouds of war. Also like her two predecessors, she was inspired by parents who loved science. Her father, G. Philip Bell, was an architect who helped design the Alma Planetarium in Northern Ireland, where she was born and raised. Jocelyn's interest in astronomy, fed by visits to the planetarium and reading her father's books on space, blossomed in the young woman. She graduated with honors from the University of Glasgow with a degree in physics. In 1965, she earned a PhD at the University of Cambridge and undertook study of quasars, incredibly powerful sources of radiation found within far-flung galaxies. Now, looking at three-month-old data in November of 1967, Bell noticed an odd signal pulsing once every 1.3 seconds. The signal was so precise that Bell initially named the signal LGM-1, or Little Green Man. During early press conferences about her discovery, however, members of the media typically asked fellow astronomer Anthony Hewish about technical aspects of the finding while relegating Bell to human interest questions, inquiries into her love life and hair color, and requests to undo a few shirt buttons for photographs. While the discovery of pulsars went on to win the Nobel Prize in Physics for 1974, Bell, now Jocelyn Bell Burnell, was not named as a prize winner. She went on to teach at Open University and was the project manager for the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope on Mauna Kea, Hawaii. In 2018, Bell Burnell was awarded a $3 million prize for her discovery of pulsars, which she donated to a fund supporting women and ethnic minorities pursuing careers in physics. Looking deep into the universe, we see backwards in time. And the oldest light in the universe 
holds secrets to how everything around us will, one day, end. Meanwhile, stars, planets, and galaxies dance in an intricate ballet, occasionally giving birth to life. We are a fledgling species, just beginning to visit other worlds. We are a way for the universe to understand itself. The Cosmic Companion strives to bring the universe down to Earth, and we depend on your help to make it happen. For information on subscriptions and ways to donate to this program, please visit thecosmiccompanion.net. Thank you. No Boundaries, a new book for young adults from National Geographic, celebrates women making outstanding contributions to our understanding of science. This work, exploring the careers of 25 female scientists around the globe, is a cooperative work from science journalists Claire Fiesler and Gabby Salazar. We talk with each of these co-authors about their exciting new project from National Geographic. week on the Cosmic Companion, we're happy to be joined by Claire Fiesler. She is a National Geographic explorer, photojournalist, and conservation biologist. Bars. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thanks for having me here. It's really yeah. great. Yeah, and uh, No Boundaries is just fabulous, fabulous book. What inspired you to, what inspired you to write this? Well, do you want the short story or the long story? Yeah. <laughs> Give us the medium story. <laughs> it's a fun story. <laughs> well, the, the fun story is that um, uh, it actually came out, of, uh, it came out of a place of frustration in that uh, I had picked up a National Geographic magazine and I was a, I was a National Geographic Young Explorer, one of the first classes of Young Explorers, which means, you know, people in their early 20s to get, you know, very small grants to do kind of, you know, boundary-pushing work. Uh, and I was working at four weeks. I was extremely proud to be part of this program. But I picked up a National Geographic magazine, which I'd been reading all my life, but I kind of read it more closely. And I realized that there was this issue, issue from 2011. And there, I, like, flipped through the whole magazine, and I just realized that there was only one woman in the entire magazine, in the entire, in the entire issue. And I was like... A second, and so I shared this kind of with uh, a friend at the time, Gabby Salazar, who became my co-author in the book, and shared it with a couple other of the young explorers. And we started going through different issues from that time period 2012, 13, 14, 2015. And we counted essentially all the issues from October 2012 to July 2015. And in those, we found 1,106 experts that had been like quoted or featured or highlighted. Some of them are word vectors, some of them are scientists. And of those, you know, you know, 1,100 experts, around 200 of them were women, so less than 20%. And that just seemed like, you know, for 20, you know, at the time it was 2016, that just seemed to us like uh, really imbalanced. And so we took this to National Geographic and uh, we got a grant to make a short film to make it, you know, potentially into a, a web series. But actually we were approached by an editor at National Geographic and said, you know, this book makes a really good children's book. 
And that's the, that's the backstory. And so our whole goal was to, you know, uh, we all grew up with National Geographic, but we not, might not subconsciously realize that, you know, there was a certain type of explorer and expert and scientist that were portrayed in those, in those, um, you know, in those pages. And so we wanted to feature, you know, have a National Geographic publication that featured the, the women that, that didn't have a shot for those many decades. So, and we figured, you know, what better, you know, what better audience for impact than um, young girls. Absolutely. And, yeah, I remember being a young kid, and this is probably going to age me some, but uh, <laughs> I, I remember uh, National Geographic had a monthly, if I recall, magazine called National Geo World. Okay, yeah. And it was, I it was like, sort of like for kids. And I remember, you know, being around science and, um, you know, reading Carl Sagan and books about astronomy endlessly, but this really provided me with a look at the natural world around me out of, mm -hmm. out of New York where I grew up. You know what I mean? And uh, what, what do you hope that young, young readers take away from this book? You know, I guess two things. One is that there's many paths into science. Um, and all, you know, the diverse class, meaning you can use reverse talents. And two is that, you know, it's a lot, it's easy to say, oh, you know, you can do it, you can be the next Jane Goodall, but um, that path is, is, is difficult and challenging, and it takes perseverance. And I think that's the other thing that these stories teach children is that, in a way that's, a, you know, we don't sugarcoat it, but it's approachable, but, you know, each of, the, each of these 25 women had a kind of unique challenge to overcome. And that's what I, that's what I love about it. Um, but, you know, going back to this idea of, like, there's many different ways into science and, like, you know, space science, military science. There's a scientist that's featured in this book here, um, Sarah Stewart Johnson, and she's an astrobiologist. So she's working mm -hmm. with NASA, you know, on life detection on other planets. She's just fantastic. And uh, we asked her, we asked all the women, like, what is your advice for your children? And her advice, which I love, was, you know, you don't have to be a math, math whiz to contribute to Mars science and planetary science. You know, you can be into robotics. You know, mm -hmm. you could be really good with imaging, with photography and work on, you know, like imaging like the current, you know, telescope, Hubbard telescope, uh, web telescope. Uh, or you could be really good at science communication. You know, NASA has one of the largest science communication uh, staffs, you know, in the federal government. And so... You know, there's no one way to use your talents to, you know, to contribute to space science, astrobiology, whatever it may be. And I just love that. So, some some of us could actually make make our spend our lives, you know, interviewing interviewing scientists who write incredible books. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Whatever your talents, whatever your talents are major. Yeah. So you know, as a as a young woman in the sciences, you must have had you know, several obstacles and challenges you had to overcome throughout your life. How did you, how did you get over them? How did you get through them? Yeah, you know, a lot of my, I will say that I have a very strong personality and I, um, and I've always had, uh, you know, confidence. My mom says, you know, uh, overabundance of confidence. And I think that has uh, helped me a lot. Um, you know, it's like the famous, um, from, uh, 
song in Sound um, of Music, I have confidence in confidence. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of, you know, kind of icky characters that I encountered in science. You know, people I'd go in the field with and they'd be, you know, taking pictures of me. You know, we were, we were supposed to be scientists together in the field and they would take pictures of me and then send, send that, you know, in a bathing suit and then send that picture to me like on the internet a couple weeks later. Or, you know, I had, um, had some people that, you know, didn't respect that I had chosen to get married young and have a family and thought I had to kind of sacrifice everything just to my science. A lot of those were just, um, I chose to separate, my, separate myself from those people. Um, so that has always been my approach is to kind of stiff arm them and keep on running down the field. Um, but, um, you know, it's tough. Uh, being, being a mother of two is also makes it very challenging. Um, and I think my own challenges uh, are unique to me and other women have their own challenges. And that's what I love about this book. Um, there's a, a great story in this book about a woman named Munasa Alam, and she studies um, atmospheres of other planets. Mm. And she talks about the importance of, um, you know, astronomy is so underrepresented with, with uh, women. And she talks about the importance of mentors and friendship and how much her peers actually really helped her in her, you know, journey towards finishing her PhD and getting to where she is now. I just love that. Um. So what got, what got you into conservation biology and running down a path to science? Did you grow up around animals? What, what's your origin story? Yeah, my origin story starts at the Jersey Shore, which people don't think that's you know, a likely place for an origin story. Um, but you know, the, origin, the, the Jersey Shore is um, more than what you see on MTV. It's, it's one of the best places in the East, East Coast for um, uh, watching seabirds. Um, it's a, considered a large flyaway. We've got, uh, we've got a bunch of marine mammals, whales, and dolphins. Um, it's, it's, it's just an incredible, you know, we have uh, obviously uh, really extensive um, salt marshes, wetlands. It's just really an incredible place. Um, and that really inspired me. And then I, I learned to scuba dive when I was at uh, high school. I convinced my mom and saved money to I, you know, so I could really get my scuba diving certification. And that just, um, you know, and, and then I, I knew I wanted to go into science, but I was hesitant and I didn't know really what it meant. I didn't know any scientists at the time. And so, um, but I did know a couple of journalists and writers. And so I ended up um, after college, uh, instead of going to grad school, I took a job, I, I was applying to jobs in kind of like media, environmental media, science media. And I applied to a dream job at National Geographic um, and I got it. And so I ended up working in National Geographic Television for two years. And the great thing about that is that I met so many scientists. I went from essentially knowing no scientists to knowing so many because I was kind of tasked with liaison between the scientists that were the center of these National Geographic documentaries and then like the film crews and the producers and so forth. And, um, and being like a go-between helping translate their, you know, the, the science for the scripts and so forth. And during that time, I met a woman named Sylvia Earle who was a really, really famous one of them most famous, I think, living scientist. She's You've had her now. on the show. You've had her on the show, okay. Yeah, yeah she's great. I love Sylvia. 
her origin story starts the Jersey Shore as well. Hmm. And we bonded over that. And I was tasked with making a lifetime achievement reel for, of, she was getting a lifetime achievement award at some point. And I was mm-hmm. uh, tasked with helping make that. And I just was pouring over her footage and I got to, and I got to meet her. And I, I just said, you know what? If she can do this, being a Jersey kid, like I can do it too. And I, I left uh, my job at National Geographic and I went back to grad school to have a master's. Uh, but I, then I started getting National Geographic grants and um, kind of, continued to walk the line between um, marine ecology, conservation biology, and, um, and media and journalism. So that's been my, that's been kind of my career for the past 15 years. Yeah. Super. And finally, what's, what's next for you? What's, where's, where's your next adventure, Claire? For me, um, I've got this great, so I spent uh, a decade um, diving on coral reefs in the Caribbean. And it, uh, a lot of people care about the coral reefs in the Caribbean. But I've discovered, you know, hotspots of biodiversity elsewhere where people just don't care yet. They don't know enough to care. Maybe they need a storyteller. Maybe they need some good science. And I found that in the Arabian Gulf, something called Persia Gulf. It's actually a hotspot of marine biodiversity. And I have a National Geographic grant right now to go out there and begin to start the first kind of systematic surveying of marine mammals across the Western Gulf, along with kind of telling the stories of some of the activists that are trying to help with animals, um, the champion, the coastline champions. And so that's, that's my, that's my next, um, that's my next uh, adventure. Although I, I fear, I don't fear, I, I hope, I guess, um, that I will continue to advocate for women in science. It's, it's something I, I envision myself doing for the rest of my life. That's fabulous. Great work. Thanks so much for being on the show, Claire. It was great talking Thank with you. Thank you so much, James. And I hope you look at your job with, with your house renovations. And uh, <laughs> it was a pleasure to be on the show. And I... I uh, look forward to hearing it and uh, and hearing more of the show. And thanks, thanks for having me. Hey, welcome back anytime. <laughs> now is Clara Fiesler, author of No Boundaries. This week on the Cosmic Companion, we're happy to be joined by Gabby Salazar. She is a National Geographic explorer, conservation photographer, and photojournalist. Welcome to the show, Gabby. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So how did you get into, how did you become a conservation photographer? What got you into it? Well, I actually started photography or taking photos of nature when I was 11 years old. And my dad, who was a photographer, kind of took me outside uh, to a friend's backyard garden. And I really got interested in nature and photography then. And then in college, I started understanding more about the environmental problems facing our planet and thought, you know, it'd be great to be able to use photography as a way to encourage people to actually make a difference for the environment. And so um, I got involved in conservation photography and have had the chance to work on projects all across the world uh, that help document these environmental issues. So awesome. So did you always love animals then because of where you grew up? Did you have pets? How did... 
You know, I grew up in rural North Carolina in a small town, and we did have five acres. Um, we're very lucky to be able to run around the woods. And I was always interested in wildlife and also plants and yeah. learning about uh, kind of, you know, nature and natural history in the place where I lived. Wow. And so you've been, you know, you spent time in rainforests and tropical islands that you, you've spent months. Now, I'm assuming those tropical island forays were not the type where you sit on the beach in a lounge chair sipping a Mai Tai. Am I right? No, I, they are. <laughs> they've been slight at those moments, but they've usually been after a long day of hiking up a mountain with like, you know, 50 pounds of camera equipment. So uh, absolutely. You know, I got to spend time, for instance, on the island of Maroon in the Indian Ocean, working on a project to document um, efforts to recover endangered species. Mauritius is the island where the dodo used to live and mm -hmm. went extinct, but now there's incredible efforts to bring endangered bird species back from the brink of extinction through human intervention. And so that's one example, and that was a really fun project to work on. That's so cool. And so how does, you know, one of the most important things in this book, the 25 Explorers book, is the photography. And this is just astounding. I mean, you know, some of the photography you get. How do you see photography helping us connect to nature? Well, you know, I think it helps in a number of ways. One is that it helps expose us to animals and places and ecosystems that we otherwise might not know about and might not care about, right? And so mm -hmm. having that exposure is really important. Um, it also maybe helps us see ourselves in other places. And we hope some of the pictures of the women in the book in particular help young people identify these relatable role models and envision themselves as scientists and explorers in the future. And so I think photography really has this kind of ability to transport us and to help us expand our imaginations. Wow. And so what's, you must have gone through some crazy, crazy things to get some photos. I mean, I'm just picturing you, you know, hanging upside down from a palm tree somewhere while a McKee is figuring out whether they can, you know, use you as a swing. <laughs> can you tell us like a great story about getting a photo? Oh, wow. There's all kinds of interesting um, ones. You know, one of my, a photo that I really love, um, and it's actually one of the images featured in the book, is um, this expedition I got to go on with Dr. Stephanie Grokey, who is a volcanologist. And while I usually photograph animals, um, <laughs> I, while I usually photograph a different type of volcanologist, exactly. Um, I, while I usually photograph animals, she called me and said, could you come and help me as a photographer on this expedition through the National Geographic Society to document volcanoes and active lava domes. And she was actually using time-lapse photography or photo photogrammetry to actually study the surface of these active lava domes. And so I said, yeah, I can't say no to that. That sounds like a, when, when, when do you get to go see an active volcano? And so right. we went with, with another explorer who is a cartographer, Ross Donahue, and we actually got to hike up to the top of this volcano and camp on the top and photograph um, eruptions in the active lava dome below. Wow. And that was a really incredible experience just to like be camping at the top of this mountain and hear the eruptions as you're trying to sleep. 
And then to be able to stand at the top and see the clouds open up and see this active lava dome below and really just observe kind of the power of nature. And I think Dr. Grokey is such a wonderful, her story is so wonderful because she talks about, you know, collecting rocks on the beach as a kid. You know, a lot of us had rock collections. I did at least. I know lots of kids are into rock collections. And she took that rock collection and she went on to actually study geology and do this professionally. And so she's a real example of kind of really understanding that little passion and that spark as a kid and actually pursuing it all the way into a career. Incredible. So how did you become involved with the book and in this amazing work that you're putting out with Claire? Yeah, well, Claire and I have been collaborating for a number of years. We've known each other through the National Geographic Explorer community for a long time. And both of us um, really recognized that there was kind of an underrepresentation of women scientists and experts in the media, including in, you know, National Geographic magazine and materials. Um, when we started looking into this about 10 years ago. And I think there's been a lot of progress since then, but there's still a need for um, a lot of better media representation of women in science and women explorers. Because one of the, one of the issues that um, research has shown uh, that young girls cite uh, a reason for not going into STEM is a lack of relatable female role models. And so we really wanted to use this book to address that issue head on and say, here are 25 women who are working on the front lines of science and exploration today. And they provide a range of different you know, careers, but also stories that we hope every kid can relate to in some way, to one of them at least. That's great. And of course, you know, young kids, and especially in our future, as they say, and, you know, it's no, not that it's true nowhere more than in science. So, so what would be your advice to young children, especially girls and young women who want to, who want to spend their lives in science? Well, I think um, two pieces of advice. One is that you don't have to get a PhD and you don't have to pursue, you know, STEM professionally to be involved in science. You could be a science communicator. You could use your athletic abilities to be involved in exploration. There's all kinds of ways kids can get involved in science. You can be a citizen scientist. Um, And I think the other piece is that failure happens and you have to learn how to overcome it. And it's a part of science. It's a part of life. And being able to learn from failure and overcome the challenges we face um, is an important part of growth. And it's also an, you know, an important thing to do if you want to pursue a career in STEM and science, because, you know, there are challenges. Like we didn't try to sugarcoat it. We really talk in these profiles about some of the challenges these women have faced. And we hope that that can show kids that you know, you shouldn't take that first no and walk away. You need to keep being persistent and keep pushing. And if you do, these women really demonstrate that, you know, you can have an incredible life and make incredible contributions to the knowledge about our planet. That's so wise. And finally, is there a photo you really want to take that you haven't taken yet? Where do you want to go next? Well, you know, I just recently, a couple years ago, got an underwater camera housing for my camera because I live in Florida now. So I get to go swim in these freshwater springs here and see the manatees, which I love. And I really want to go um, uh, to some of the coral reefs and the coral triangle and photograph um, some of the incredible 
uh, manta rays and some of the big um, uh, coral reefs there. So I'm, I'm eager to get out. I've thought about that the whole pandemic, just swimming and snorkeling over the coral reefs and looking at all the beautiful colors. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And once again, thanks for being on the show and congratulations on the book. It's, it's really a wonderful piece. Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And that was Gabby Salazar, National Geographic Explorer, conservation photographer, and photojournalist. Budding scientists face numerous challenges as they start down a career in scientific disciplines, especially young women and people of color. Space Prize seeks to empower young women, providing funding and opportunities for the next generation of female scientists. Kim Masharia, chair of the board of Space Prize, talks to us about their program supporting young women in science. This week on the Cosmic Companion, we're happy to be joined by Kim Masharia. She is chair of the board of directors for the Space Frontiers Foundation and executive director of Space Prize. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, just tell us a little bit, what, what is Space Prize and what is it that you folks are accomplishing out there? Yeah, so Space Prize is a new nonprofit, and we're all just dedicated to empowering young women to participate in the growing space economy. So we're doing this by running a couple pretty cool competitions. Um, I don't want to bury the lead, so the big one that we're doing is actually a global contest where we're sending young women to space. Uh, but before we get that, before we get to that really big fun competition, we're actually starting off with a smaller pilot program uh, that's called Space Prize Challenge NYC. So this pilot program is a, an essay contest that's, that's being run in five schools in New York City, one in each borough, and the lucky winners of this contest are going to go on a zero-G flight, and they're going to get a year of mentorship from a leading figure in the aerospace industry. So we have some amazing women on board, like Ginger Carrick, who is the first female Hispanic flight director at NASA. Insane. I cannot imagine all the amazing insights these girls are going to be blessed with from the mentors that we've accrued. But for our global contest, which launches in June, like I said, we'll be sending young women to space, two women to be specific, from anywhere in the globe. They just have to be 15 to 18 years old when they first apply. And not only that, they'll also get a year of mentorship. And we have some pretty fun perks for our runner-ups, including another zero-g flight um, and some other fun things like mentorship as well. Oh, and one other really cool perk that we have for our two grand prize winners is that not only will they get to go have this amazing, life-changing experience, but they'll also get to come back to their communities because we're going to give them a subsidy for them to launch a STEAM initiative in their, in their communities, in their schools. So they won't be just impacting, you know, having this life-changing experience for themselves. Ideally, they'll be creating a ripple effect within their own local communities. And hopefully we'll see some pretty cool impacts and transformations happening as a result of both of these competitions. Absolutely. That's one of the greatest things about science education and one of the most important for me is the way that they go out and spread the light of science to to communities, get people, get the general public more interested in and involved in science. So how did you become 
involved in Space Prize. What's your story? Oh, ironically, I uh, back in college, I had a screenwriting fellowship for a couple of years. So I would get funding to do ethnographic research on American values, a lot of fun. And my last script, um, I wrote that script at a time where I knew nothing about space, no one in space. And it was inspired by a jacket I had gotten from a thrift store, a NASA space camp jacket. And I read a musical comedy about two women competing for a free trip to space. My research inspired me to dive into all the different disparities that are present in the industry, like gender disparities, uh, the issue of space when you come from a different country, non- a non-space-faring nation, and you want to work in space. All those problems compelled me to write my senior thesis as a philosophy student about democratizing the space industry. And so I did that. I took a risk the summer after I graduated and went to a space conference and volunteered there. I'm my first boss in the industry. He created an internship position just for me because he liked my paper. <laughs> and then I moved to New York a few few weeks later, and I've been working in space, having a good time ever since. That's so fabulous. That's a great story. I, I love any any story that involves a thrift store. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those are my favorite places to shop for my clothes. Ninety yeah. percent of my closet is thrifted. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, what advice can you give to girls and young women, especially who are looking to start in a life of science? I, I think the biggest thing I would recommend is reaching out and getting connected to the, the few of us women who are out here doing the thing. Um, and that's something else that we're really focusing on providing resources to young women is actually a, we're launching a community platform on top of everything that we're doing with our contest. We're launching a community platform for teachers and for students to get connected and learn more about the opportunities that lie in the growing space economy. Because as you and I both know, the industry is just growing like crazy. There's actually a talent gap, which is insane. Um, and I think that if we can get enough young women inspired to realize that the industry, there is their space for them and that the industry has become a lot more welcoming and inclusive than it was in the past, we can get a lot of really incredible young leaders through the pipeline and into the jobs that are currently sitting around here empty waiting for the right person to fill them. Great. And finally, where can people get more information about Space Prize? You can find us at spaceprize.org if you want to come visit our website. But we are also on all social media platforms as as the Space Prize. So T-H-E-S-P-A-C-E-P-R-I-Z-E. You can follow us and figure out how you can get plugged in either by supporting the project or by actually uh, participating as a contestant. Fabulous. Thanks so much for being on the show, Kim. It was great talking with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, now is Kim Masharia, Executive Director of Space Prize. Check them out. As always, thanks for joining us once again on the Cosmic Companion. It's always nice to see you. Well, I can't see you, but yeah. Next week, we have a NASA legend on the show, Poppy Northcutt. She was the first ever female engineer at NASA who developed critical mathematics, ensuring the success of Apollo 8 and the safe return of Apollo 13. We're going to talk to her about her work on Apollo and discuss the upcoming Artemis missions, returning humans to the surface of the moon for the first time in five decades. Please make sure to join us then. Check out all of our episodes at thecosmiccompanion.tv 
or find the Cosmic Companion on most social media sites. Please subscribe, follow, and tell your friends about the show. You're the ones who make this all possible. Clear skies. Thank you.